Together, we can and will finally put the interests of all of our people ahead of the interests of a powerful few. Well, that's Chicago, anyway. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. It ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. Out in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where we've got some good news, W on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, in Palinville, New York, on WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, in Gallup, New Mexico, on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, in Goldendale, Washington on KVGD, in Janesville, Wisconsin, where we've got some less good news on WADR, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet. on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me. <clears throat> from bradblog.com. Thanks for joining us. Well, Desi Doyen, shall we start with the good election day news or the bad election day news? Oh, whatever. I guess the good news. Yes, we will start with the good <laughs> election day news. And then we will have the nation's John Nichols join us for the bad election day news and see if he can cheer us up. Mm. He, he does sometimes, you know. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's a cheery guy. We'll see how that works out. So we'll, we'll start with the good news here. Uh, the nation's third largest city has a new mayor-elect after what appears to be a resounding and historic victory for Lori Lightfoot, being regarded as a repudiation of the city's notorious old-style insider politics. Lightfoot, a former federal prosecutor who'd never been elected to public office ever, defeated Cook County Board President, longtime city council member Tony Preckwinkle on Tuesday by a reported 74 to 26 percent thumping. 74 to 26. That is a thumping. At least according to the results we have uh, today following yesterday's election. A thumping indeed. The 56-year-old Lightfoot is said to have won every single one of the city's 50 wards. She also made history, becoming the first black woman and the first openly gay person to be elected mayor in Chicago. Breckwinkle Breck. 
Preckwinkle, by the way, uh, is also an African-American woman. So we knew that part of the result either way going into Tuesday's runoff. We knew there we, that we'd be making some history uh, in Chicago, uh, which will now become the largest U.S. city in the nation to have a black woman serving as mayor. Once Lightfoot is sworn in uh, on May 20, she will join seven other black women currently serving as mayors in major U.S. cities, including Atlanta and New Orleans. And uh, she will also be the second woman uh, to lead Chicago. Lightfoot emerged as the surprising leader after the first round of voting. Tuesday was the runoff. First round of voting was back in February with 14 candidates on the ballot, hoping to succeed Mayor Rahm Emanuel, who decided against running for a third term. Lightfoot seized on outrage over a white police officer's fatal shooting of black teenager Laquan McDonald to launch her reformer campaign as a former federal prosecutor, getting into the race early, even before Emanuel announced that he would not seek re-election for a third term amid criticism for initially resisting calls to release video of that shooting. At her uh, victory party on Tuesday night, Lightfoot told jubilant supporters, out there tonight, a lot of little girls and boys are watching. They're watching us and they're seeing the beginning of something, well, a little bit different, she said. They're seeing a city reborn. Together, we can and will finally put the interests of our people, all of our people, ahead of the interests of a powerful few. Together. We can and will make Chicago a place where your zip code doesn't determine your destiny. We can and we will build trust between our people and our brave police officers so that the communities and police trust each other, not fear each other. We can and we will break this city's endless cycle of corruption. Our duty as a city, as leaders, as neighbors, as people, is to stand with these mothers and children and put an end to this gun violence once and for all. We must say enough is enough. And I've also met families from our immigrant communities, people from Mexico, people from Central and South America, people from the Middle East, Asia and Africa, people from all over the world. And these people are scared. They're scared of the climate of hate and fear, fanned and promoted by a culture in Washington, D.C., and from the White House in the capital of our own country. Now it is our solemn duty as a city, as people, as neighbors, to stand up for our immigrant families, to protect them, and stand against hate. That was Chicago's mayor-elect Lori Lightfoot at her uh, victory party on Tuesday night after the results came in and showed her resounding victory. 
against uh, Preckwinkle, who, by the way, uh, was very gracious in her concession, congratulating Lightfoot on a hard-fought campaign, telling her own supporters that uh, while I might be disappointed, I am not disheartened. For one thing, she said, this is clearly a historic night. Not long ago, two African-American women vying for this position would have been unthinkable. And while it may be true that we took very different paths to get here, Tonight is about the path forward, she said. Nice. Very nice indeed. Uh, The new mayor will now take over a city, however, that faces massive financial problems. She'll have just a few months to prepare a new budget, which in 2020 is expected to have a roughly $250 million deficit left behind for her by Rahm Emanuel, a close associate of the Clinton family before he became President Barack Obama's first chief of staff. Lightfoot will also uh, take over the worst funded public pensions of any major U.S. city with Chicago's annual payments to the retirement systems slated to grow by one point two billion dollars by 2023. So lots of challenges ahead for Chicago's new mayor, but a good night for progressives and reformers in the Windy City on Tuesday. It was also a good night for Democrats in the swing state of Pennsylvania on Tuesday and, frankly, across the country for those looking for a potential bellwether in the important Keystone state in advance of the 2020 presidential election where Democrats claimed victory Tuesday night after a two-month campaign for a vacant state Senate seat in politically divided suburban Pittsburgh where the sides tested some national themes ahead of 2020's presidential election in the critical background state. It's said to have been narrowly won by President Donald Trump in 2016, albeit largely on 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems, on which we have been forced to simply trust that the reported results of that very close race back in 2016 actually reflected the will of Pennsylvania voters. Who knows? The state Senate seat, however, that was up for grabs on Tuesday night had been largely controlled by Republicans for the past half century. But the district is now viewed as increasingly friendly to Democrats in territory that party strategists now view as something of a bellwether for next year's presidential race after it had reportedly gone to Trump in 2016 but swung by double digits over to Democratic Governor uh, Tom Wolf last November in the 2018 midterms. So the winner on uh, Tuesday night in the 37th state Senate district in Pennsylvania was Democrat Pam Iovina, who uh, told her enthusiastic victory, pard crowdy, uh, uh, victory party crowd at a Pittsburgh Union Hall, that the district is, quote, blue again. The National Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee said Iovino's victory shows Democrats, quote, have momentum in key races and swing states across the country as the American people resoundingly reject Trump's agenda and the Republican legislators across the country who follow his lead. So with 100 percent of precincts reporting, Decision Desk uh, reports that Iovino defeated Republican D. Raja by four percentage points, 52 to 48, or about 4,000 votes, albeit yet again, 
on mostly 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems that are still shamefully used in both Allegheny and Washington counties, which is where the state's 37th state Senate district is located in the western suburbs outside Pittsburgh, while an encouraging sign for Democrats, of course, ahead of 2020, both in and out of the state, Iovino's victory will not change the balance of power for now in Pennsylvania's Senate, where Republicans hold a 26-21 majority, and her seat will be up uh, for grabs again next year after Tuesday's special election to fill that vacancy. She was uh, helped by universal universal support from labor unions and grassroots volunteerism and uh, is also seen as reflecting this uh, area, uh, reflecting longtime Republican strongholds near the Steel City creeping leftward. Uh, and areas heavy with union households finally shifting back after a right rightward swing in recent decades. It was a uh, special election in an off year, so not tremendously high turnout. However, the uh, low 30 percent turnout was actually pretty good for a special election in Pennsylvania. In 2016, this same district helped Trump become the first Republican since 1988, to capture Pennsylvania's 20 electoral votes, Trump won it reportedly by six percentage points. Uh, but Democrats say that their polling showed that Trump's popularity in the district has now slid. They even made an effort to tie Raja, the Republican, to Trump, sending a mailer that quoted Raja's praise of Trump. And oddly enough, as we mentioned yesterday on the program, Uh, At the same time, a Republican mailer uh, also sent in recent days also linked Raja to Trump, saying, quote, a vote for Raja is a vote for President Trump's agenda. This world is getting really weird, man. (laughs) This is just really weird where both parties essentially have the same tactic one to defeat the candidate and the other to help the candidate. Yeah. It's, both by saying he's Trump's guy. It would be interesting to look back and see if it works like with Obama, if they did the same thing with Obama, but I'm pretty sure they didn't. So I don't know. It'd be fascinating for the political scientists. It to look will at. be indeed. Uh, Raja uh, was or is the chief executive of an information technology consulting firm. Iovino is a Navy veteran who held a top U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs post. Uh, who otherwise shied away from attacking Trump during most of the campaign. In the campaign's final hours on Monday, the state Republican Party issued a robocall from Donald Trump Jr. urging listeners to vote for Raja and saying that Iovino has a, quote, liberal and extreme agenda and supports, quote, radical policies like New York's late-term law, socialist medicine, and the government taking more of our money. One attack ad from Raja cited the Green New Deal, charging that Iovino has, quote, teamed up with extremists who want to stop our growth (laughs) with billions in new energy taxes. Well, those attacks uh, apparently did not work for Republicans, at least in the suburbs of Pittsburgh on Tuesday night. That's a good sign for Democrats 
heading into 2020, where if uh, if all of the other states that went as they did for Democrats and Republicans in 2016, if that happens again, Dems would then only need to flip Pennsylvania, which elected a Democratic governor last November, Michigan, which elected a Democratic governor statewide last November, and Wisconsin, which also elected a Democratic governor statewide last November. If they can flip those three states back to the Democratic column and everything else stays the same, Democrats uh, would be on track to take back the White House in uh, in 2020. But what appears to have happened on Tuesday in Wisconsin in a key state Supreme Court election is much less encouraging for Democrats ahead of 2020, at least if they hope to flip all three of those states needed to win back the White House. And frankly, uh, it's bad news for the next decade in the Badger State if Tuesday night's results hold up. The man who knows Wisconsin and its politics as well or better than anyone, that would be John Nichols of The Nation and The Capital Times. He will join us next to make sense of what happened on Tuesday in Wisconsin. You don't want to miss it. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. That's bradblog.com slash donate and thanks. On Wisconsin, on Wisconsin, calling me that way, on Wisconsin. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Well, very, very late on election night, Tuesday night, actually in, in a statement released after 2 a.m. local time on Wednesday in Wisconsin, the state Republican Party executive director, Mark Jefferson, took a bit of a victory lap after what appeared to be a very narrow and frankly surprising win after the statewide election on Tuesday to fill the seat of a retiring, progressive-aligned state Supreme Court justice. Jefferson said, Judge Hagedorn's victory was not only a victory for clean government and the rule of law, but is sure to send shockwaves across the political spectrum. Together, he said, we sent a message to all of America that we're ready to keep Wisconsin red, as we turn our attention to mobilizing for 2020 and re-electing President Trump. The campaign of Brian Hagedorn's challenger, Judge Lisa Neubauer, however, issued a statement declaring the race too close to call on Tuesday night, uh, as AP and others have done as well, saying that the key contest was, quote, almost assuredly headed to a recount, vowing to make sure that every vote is counted because Wisconsinites deserve to know we have had a fair election and 
that every vote is counted. While that may be easier said than done, uh, while state law in Wisconsin allows a candidate to request and pay for a recount if their losing margin is less than 1%, as we learned after the 2016 election when Green Party candidate Jill Stein sought a recount before Republicans changed the rules to make it more difficult for losing candidates to do so, uh, we learned that the state allows local jurisdictions to decide whether they wish to count the state's mostly hand-marked paper ballots by hand or by running them through the same computer scanners that tallied them the first time. Nonetheless, as of today, AP reports the right-wing Koch brother-supported Judge Hagedorn is up in this important election by one-half of one percent, or just under 6,000 votes out of just over 1.2 million votes cast statewide on Tuesday in an ostensibly nonpartisan election, though one in which the candidates for the state's highest court had clear support from either the left or the right. Judge Neubauer, a member of a well-known Democratic family in the state, is said to have had a pretty substantial financial advantage throughout the race against Hagedorn, who was the former legal advisor to Republican Governor Scott Walker, uh, who voters sent packing last November, you may recall, in favor of Democrat Tony Evers, uh, who eked out a narrow victory in what has become a key swing state for the 2020 elections. That after narrowly going to Republican Donald Trump back in 2016 for the first time in decades. The far-right Judge Hagedorn was not a particularly good candidate. At least that's what progressives has, had, had thought, as he had repeatedly tied homosexuality to bestiality while a law student. He called Planned Parenthood a wicked organization and the NAACP a, quote, disgrace to America. He also founded a Christian school that bans LGBT students and teachers. After a pickup on the high court last year by a progressive-aligned judge, Wisconsin Supreme Court had a 4-3 to right-wing advantage versus liberals, and it would have had one again, even had Neubauer won on Tuesday night. But Democrats in the state were very hopeful that with a victory from Neubauer on Tuesday, uh, as most on both sides had been predicting, that they would then be well teed up to finally retake a majority on the high court in Wisconsin next year when a retiring conservative justice could then be replaced by another election on the same day of what is expected to be a very high turnout 2020 Democratic presidential primary next year in the Badger State. Flipping that seat on the court would have then given progressives a 4-3 to three majority on the court for the first time in years in advance of the 2020 census and the inevitable court battles that will accompany redistricting in one of the nation's most partisan gerrymandered states, not to mention in legal fights over voting rights, like Wisconsin's controversial polling place photo ID restrictions, much of Scott Walker's legacy anti-union agenda, and of course the power grab legislation adopted by the gerrymandered Republican state legislature last December after Walker's loss in November, but before the new Democratic governor and attorney general could be sworn in. So... 
What exactly uh, happened in Wisconsin on Tuesday? Does a potential recount have any chance of changing the current results of the extremely close election? And what the hell does all of this mean for Democrats in Wisconsin and beyond in 2020? Joining us now for some hopefully wise answers to those pressing questions is our old friend John Nichols. He is Washington correspondent for The Nation, contributing writer for The Progressive and In These Times, and associate editor of Madison, Wisconsin's Capital Times, where he remains a favorite progressive son. He's also the author of many books on progressive politics, including his latest, Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, a field guide to the most dangerous people in America. John Nichols, my friend, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Hey, Brad, it's great to be on with you, although it might have been greater under different circumstances. Yeah, well, uh, it, it seems it's always one or the other when we have to call on you, John. Uh, last time last time you were here, this was actually, I think it was the summer uh, last year before the November 2018 mm-hmm. elections. You had adamantly predicted that Wisconsinites had had enough, that Democrat Tony Evers was likely to become the state's next governor, and you turned out to be right. But if the numbers hold up from Tuesday's election uh, this week, uh, does that mean that voters want to return to the bad old days of the Scott Walker Koch brothers agenda in Wisconsin, John? Answer no. (laughs) But what it does mean is that Wisconsin is a highly competitive state. It's a close state. Mm -hmm. There's simply no question of that. And we are, I think, starting to understand although I I don't think, obviously, some of the political strategists understand as well as they must, that it is really all about turnout. Mm -hmm. It's about who you get to the polls and where and when. And, critically, it's about understanding that you don't do your victory laps until you've had the election. And what happened in Wisconsin, there are many levels to talk about here, Mm -hmm. and and you put a lot of things on the table, all of them vital. First and foremost... This open seat is a seat that progressives were quite convinced they were going to win. Mm -hmm. It's because of all the things you said. Uh, Brian Hagedorn was an exceptionally weak candidate Mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons. And, amazingly enough, in Wisconsin, much of the business community that has traditionally shored up these very right-wing courts Mm -hmm. uh, withdrew support from him. They said, you know, this guy, he's, he's too much. He's too extreme mm-hmm. on LGBTQ issues, a host of other things. So they pulled back. And I, I think an awfully lot of progressives looked at that and said, oh, well, you know, if they're not shoring up Hagedorn, he can't win. Here's the mistake they made. We now have in the United States a huge amount of free-floating money that is ready to jump in uh, to even, you know, very uphill races at the last minute to make a hard push, and to potentially take advantage of an opening. That's part of what happened in Wisconsin. And you saw a massive infusion of money from uh, Republican national Republican groups, groups mm-hmm. aligned with the Koch brothers, at the last minute, and they didn't just do TV. They did uh, what looks to be some exceptionally solid, on-the-ground mobilization, particularly oriented toward evangelical Christians who didn't necessarily disagree with some of the things Brian Hagedorn was saying. Uh-huh. So it was a very it was good strategy, give them that, but 
the final thing I'll say on this yeah. uh, is that this is still a very, very close race. Brian Hagedorn has a little bit under five, under 6,000 lead. Mm-hmm. Uh, much of that piled up at the very, you know, last moments of the, of the evening. Uh, we need to have first the official reconciliation of the ballots. Yep. They need to be reviewed. That's, that's standard practice and it really needs to happen on this. Secondly, um, we're certainly within the realm of a reasonable recount. Uh, this is the state laws, even as they were narrowed by mm-hmm. the Republicans, right. uh, hold out the prospect of a recount. And indeed, with a little bit of the reconciliation, it's possible it could even fall into the zone, that very, very narrow zone of a free recount. Yeah, and particularly, by the way, in Wisconsin, where we have seen numbers yeah. change in big ways for various reasons, from election officials who just missed a bunch of uh, uh, a, a bunch of ballots on election night to computer counts that were turned out to be completely wrong. I remember in uh, one Wisconsin town some years ago that uh, an amendment to uh, overturn Citizens United and uh, for somehow or another some sixteen thousand votes did not get counted at all because of a computer failure. So, yeah, we have to see what happens when there is a reconciliation of some sort, a recount of some sort. Do uh, do you sense that, as I understand it, it's still up to the jurisdictions whether they wish to recount the hand-marked paper ballots by hand or by computer? Is that still the the recount law, as you understand it, John, in Wisconsin? It is as I understand it. Um, I would suggest to you that, frankly, if some of the more, let's say, conservative counties Mm -hmm. chose to not do it by hand, they would be potentially making a dumb mistake because most of our more progressive counties, if there was a recount, would do it by hand Mm -hmm. and uh, potentially find... I I realize all the challenges with this, so I'm not naive about it, but I think the pressure would be on to do a hand recount, uh, and I think a lot of the media in the state would... I would hope. Well, you step would, up to you would think that, that would be the case, but that didn't happen after the 2016 presidential election, which was, you know, obviously incredibly close in Wisconsin, had huge ramifications, uh, and yet a lot of the uh, uh, localities up there did decide to to count by uh, computer yep. for some reason. Yep. That is still baffling to me. But John, you talked about the. Um, this uh, turnout, and it's sort of a storied uh, uh, turnout machine of the, uh, by, you know, by the Republicans up in Wisconsin, the Koch brothers, and so on and so forth. Why is there not, or or is there, uh, a similar Democratic turnout machine in Wisconsin? I was speaking with uh, pollster Charles Franklin uh, last night about all of this. He said that actually. Turnout went up yesterday on both sides of the uh, political aisle there, but it appears to have gone up more for the GOP than for Democrats. Do Democrats have a turnout machine in Wisconsin? Obviously not. <laughs> I mean, let's, let's not be silly about this. If you go into the counties, and, uh-huh. and Charles is right, there was an overall increase uh, compared to last year's Supreme Court race mm-hmm. where a progressive one, a key seat, uh, flipped a seat that had been held by a conservative right. in a major, major result. Um, Double digits, turnout, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Turnout was up about mm, 200,000 folks, a substantial increase. Mm-hmm. And I would, 
say, and this is a rough estimate, I went through the counties, I would say about 50,000, um, maybe a little bit more mm-hmm. of that increase was in liberal counties. Mm-hmm. And I would say well over 100,000 was in conservative, more conservative counties, and maybe even into the 150 range. And so uh, clearly conservative turnout was up dramatically. Liberal turnout, progressive turnout, was up somewhat, and it was very concentrated in Dane County mm-hmm. uh, and Brown County, another county where Green Bay is located, uh, both of which had big mayoral races, big local mayoral races. Right. But the this is where something devastating happened for progressives. In Milwaukee County, yeah. turnout was very low. Now, the weird part about it is the people who turned out were pretty liberal. Right. They voted for progressives won not just at the, um, you know, in the higher level offices. Progressives also won local judgeships and swept the school board in Milwaukee. And so the people who came were pretty progressive, but they just, it was certainly not sufficient number. Mm. It was a way low turnout. And that's a very, very serious issue. The second thing to keep in mind is that uh, many people look at the, the Koch Brothers organized uh, turnout machine in the Milwaukee suburbs. Right. That's not what happened this time. They were up. There's no question. There was a, a boost there. Right. There was a really substantial boost in the areas north of those suburbs heading up toward the Fox River Valley, mm-hmm. which is a historically, in many of these areas, many of these, especially regions, very evangelical and um, very conservative Catholic region. And I think there's simply no question. I don't know. I'm, I'm not saying it. I mean, it's, it's not a debatable point. Um, there was a very strong mobilization in, in particularly some of these evangelical Christian areas. Well, well, let me ask you about that, because I've seen some argue today, John Nichols, that, um, and it's sort of an echo from, from after the 2016 presidential race, that uh, the, the progressives, the Democrats, tend to focus too much on cultural issues rather than economic issues. Uh, so, A, I'm wondering if, if that may have made the difference here, because... And, and by the way, I I, I, I don't have a, a dog in that hunt. I think you've got to run on every issue. But is it possible that pointing out Hagedorn's homophobia here, where he compared homosexuality to bestiality, etc., that that actually helped turn out Republicans, that Republicans actually are in favor of guys like that. Uh, You know, that's the same sort of hatred we saw coming from Trump over immigration and and so forth. I mean, if so, if that is actually a a goose's turnout on the right, what's the answer to that? Because I don't think that uh, things like that should be downplayed or ignored during campaigns when you're going to have a guy, a, a guy on the high court in Wisconsin you know, who compares gay people to uh, bestiality. I think that does need to be pointed out, even if it does goose people on the other side to turn out. But I don't know what the answer is. Well, look, the answer is that every election is nuanced. And um, Madison, Wisconsin, Mm -hmm. the state's second largest city, just elected a lesbian mayor. Mm -hmm. Uh, First lesbian ever elected, first LGBTQ person ever elected the mayor of uh, Madison. Mm-hmm. And um, Green Bay 
just elected a uh, a candidate who ran very passionately on his support for LGBTQ rights. It was a issue of uh, some consequence. He highlighted the support he was getting from the human rights campaign up there. So there are parts of Wisconsin, uh, which, uh, by the way, the first state in the country, or a pioneering state, I should say, depending on you know how you measure these things, but a pioneering state on on literally establishing uh, anti-discrimination laws back in the early 1980s mm-hmm. uh, for the LGBTQ community. So um, I, I think running away from that is it would have been foolish. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I don't think that you just run away from these concerns because I think there's a lot of Wisconsinites who do care. But I do think that one of the things is you have to also highlight um, the strengths of your of your other candidate. I mean, there was this attack of Hagedorn uh, on Hagedorn mm-hmm. because of things he said. There, I don't know that there was enough for Lisa Newbar of saying, you know, she's got this humane and, and responsible approach right. to these issues. Right? It's right. more that guy's a bad guy, uh, but not a this person's a good person. Yeah. And it's one of the dangers of negative campaigning in general. And let me offer uh, another element of this as well. In my opinion, uh, there was, this just goes to heart and soul mobilization. Many people analyze this based on on the issues, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and I understand that, and I respect that greatly. I like campaigns that are, you know, analyzed on issues. But there was just, the Milwaukee turnout was just low. It was really low. And also, strikingly, in Racine County, where Lisa Neubauer is from, where her daughter serves as a state legislator, where her husband was a longtime legislator and a leading uh, civic leader Mm -hmm. in in Racine forever, she lost Racine County by 6,000 votes. If she had simply carried her home county, which is a competitive county, um, she would have won, she would have been even at least, and maybe have won. And so there's a lot going on here uh, and and I do think, yes, you could talk about all the issues. I think it's very relevant. But I think you also have to talk about, the, going back to that first question you asked, Brad, mm-hmm. you said, is there a Democratic turnout machine? The answer is, whatever they've got is insufficient. Well, I do know that after the 2016 election, we found that in, I think it was uh, Dane and uh, 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 Milwaukee, if I recall, that... Uh, a study was done in just those two counties, 23,000 voters either couldn't vote due to the uh, photo ID restriction uh, in the state uh, or didn't think they could vote because of that new rule and didn't think they had the right ID, even though they did. And then, of course, Donald Trump ended up winning by just about exactly 23,000 votes uh, in Wisconsin is is that uh, a potentially an issue when we keep looking? I've seen a lot of people look at the uh, low turnout in Milwaukee. Could that have anything to do with it? It does seem strangely low in Milwaukee, given the increases among progressives pretty much everywhere else in the state. Well, I would, again, I'll counsel that increases for progressives everywhere else. Would say it was, you know, some places, Madison, Green mm-hmm. Bay, I think you saw some significant stuff. I think in southwestern Wisconsin, you also saw some real movement that is very, very significant. When you looked at the map, the map looked like a winning map for a progressive candidate. Mm-hmm. But clearly, in some of those counties that were colored blue, the, the turnout wasn't what it would be, was needed to score a win. And I do think Milwaukee is a key one there. 
but there was also in Kenosha County, a county that, you know, frankly should have seen a better turnout. Mm-hmm. Um, that county had a low turnout. New Bauer carried it. Or, I'm sorry, I apologize. Hagedorn carried it. Right. And so here's what I would suggest to you. I do think you had low turnout that could have been boosted. And what I will suggest to you is this, and, and this is my, I, I will write about this, so I'm mm-hmm. certainly not uncomfortable suggesting it. I happen to think our uh, Democratic and progressive friends are obsessed with Donald Trump and the presidential race. Mm-hmm. And I think they have a very hard time uh, getting focused on local elections. Mm. And I'm going to tell you, I think that's a very dangerous game. Well, can we or should we take anything from this uh, as we're looking forward to uh, 2020? And of course, Wisconsin is going to be key, essentially, if every, as I've said, if everything uh, stays exactly as it was in 2016, all the states stay the same, except Democrats are able to flip back Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin, then a Democrat takes the White House. So can we or should we take anything from what happened on Tuesday night in Wisconsin and apply it forward towards the 2020 presidential race? Or is this simply an outlier because, hey, this is just a local election, even though it was statewide. It's a local election. It doesn't have the the, the national effect as many voters may see it uh, in 2020. Our Republican friends would like to tell you that it does have a national effect. They're, they're pointing to this as uh, very significant evidence of something of a comeback, and maybe they're learning how to do some campaigning. Uh, they were working with a very flawed candidate uh, here, somebody with some mm-hmm. really controversial positions. Does that sound familiar as regards to 2020? Yeah. Um, so I think you begin by taking away uh, the lesson that, that they are suggesting, which is that in a rough circumstance with a, they aren't saying this, but I will, flawed yeah. candidate, um, they're able to pull something out. Um, I, that's the number one lesson. And- Do not assume Donald Trump is doomed. And I think a lot of progressives sometimes think that way. Yes, So they number do. one, understand that there's something real going on there. And then the second element of it is, no, don't take everything away, because one of the things I just said a couple minutes ago mm-hmm. is that I think an awful lot of our progressive friends are very, very focused on Trump and the presidential race. And so, yes, will mobilization be easier? Will it be uh, more both intuitive and structural? Yeah, I think it will, and so I, I think there's a really good chance that what you saw in 2018 in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, very strong mm-hmm. uh, patterns for the Democrats, much stronger, yep. uh, that that's, that's, that's something that's real for the presidential. Again, though, my only counsel is that we now in Wisconsin, a battleground state, have seen circumstances where there was an assumption that uh, Hillary Clinton would win, there was an assumption that former Senator Russ Feingold would win his Senate race mm-hmm. in 2016. Those did not happen. Uh, so it wasn't just the Trump-Clinton thing. It was also a Senate race. Yep. Now uh, we've had another race, this Supreme Court race. And so I just think that, that progressive strategists, progressive thinkers, have to really take a sobering lesson here. And it is simply that um, they cannot assume even when running against a, a profoundly flawed candidate, and even when it looks like the Republicans and the conservatives have kind of given up or whether that they're overwhelmed, they can't assume that's the case because yeah. this 
last-minute infusion of money from the Republican political forces and from the Koch brothers, mm-hmm. I, I think, proved to be incredibly powerful. And and look, it looks like we'll have a recount. I think a recount has to be covered. It's very important. Yeah. But it looks like uh, they may have saved a candidate who really shouldn't have had a chance. So, uh, message here: Stop assuming. Start voting, uh, John. I, I, since I, I, I don't want to leave uh, listeners wanting to uh, jump off a building after listening to this conversation today. Uh, I got about thirty seconds here. Uh, cheer us up a bit. Any thoughts on Lori Lightfoot's victory in Chicago as their next mayor, the first uh, black female, first openly gay mayor in Chicago? Anything there that you find that uh, may cheer us up on the way out, my friend? Well, and a bunch of socialists got elected to the city council as well. Um, uh, so yeah. lots coming out of Chicago. You know, a town where it used to be elections were so predictable, you know, you basically just weighed the votes, right? Now <laughs> right. you have some really compatible, competitive, interesting stuff. I could tell you a million things. What I would recommend is Google the ad that Lori Lightfoot did with her daughter in it. Mm. It is one of the best political ads I have seen in recent years. It is light and fun and yet goes to fundamental issues. This was a very creative candidate who has a lot, a first-time candidate, by the way, who has Mm -hmm. a lot to teach progressives and reformers about how to communicate about tough and complicated issues in really smart, effective ways. Thank you, sir. Uh, I will uh, do that myself. John Nichols, uh, you can reach him on the Twitters at Nichols Uprising. You can also find his work, of course, as always, at thenation.com, where he has a very interesting article this week, by the way, that we didn't have time to get into. A lot of interesting articles, as usual, but one on the, yes, socialist, actual socialist history of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which was run by uh, literal socialists for most of the 20th centuries, century and what we can uh, learn from that as we move forward into 2020, and also on uh, a constitutional amendment for the right to vote, a long overdue one that uh, Elizabeth Warren now seems to be supporting as well. So that's good news. John Nichols, always great talking to you, my friend. We will bother you very soon in the future, no doubt, with a lot to talk about uh, before 2020. Best conversation ever, my friend. I'm always glad to be with you. You rock, brother. Okay, uh, well, we got a lot of news actually going on in Washington, D.C. today as well. Again, some good, some bad. That's next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't jump off that building and don't touch that dial. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Democrats uh, in the House are rocking today, at least a little bit. Uh, a lot going on in Congress, actually, both in the House and the Senate. Let's start with uh, this from the House Judiciary Committee. They approved subpoenas on Wednesday for Special Counsel Robert Mueller's full Russia report. 
to pressure the Justice Department to release the documents without redactions, at least to Congress, if not to the public. The House Judiciary Committee voted 24 to 17 to give Judiciary Chair Gerald Nadler permission to issue subpoenas to the Justice Department for the final report from the special counsel. For the report, for its exhibits, for any underlying evidence or materials prepared for Mueller's investigation. Nadler has not yet set, said if he will send the subpoenas, which would be the first step, as AP notes, in a potentially long fight with the Justice Department over those materials. On the Mueller report, House Democrats had given Attorney General William Barr until Tuesday of this week to provide an unredacted version of the report to Congress, along with the underlying materials. But the DOJ ignored that deadline entirely, with Barr telling committee chair uh, chairman in a, uh, a letter last week that he was in the process of redacting portions of the almost 400 page report and that it would be released by mid-April, quote, if not sooner, with those redactions that are left to him, apparently, He, an appointee of Donald Trump's, uh, who largely got the job because he wrote an unrequested essay on how he felt the Robert Mueller special counsel was inappropriate to start with, that it should have never uh, been looking into the things that it was looking in. So that's the guy who is doing all of the redactions of this 400 page report that you paid for. But maybe you'll get to see some of it. If Barr decides you get to. If he lets you. Uh, The vote in the uh, Judiciary Committee further escalates the Democrats' battle with the Justice Department over how much of the report they will, even they, will be able to see. That fight could uh, head to court if the two sides can't settle their differences through negotiation. Democrats have said they will not accept redactions and they want to see the evidence unfiltered by Barr. In the letter last week, Barr had said that he is scrubbing the report to avoid disclosing any grand jury information or classified material or uh, portions of the report that pertain to ongoing investigations or that, quote, would unduly infringe on the personal privacy and reputational interests of peripheral third parties. Well, who would be those peripheral third parties? I mean, Donald Trump, we hear that he wasn't charged here. So would he be a peripheral third party that we would hate to uh, embarrass him and infringe on his personal privacy? Who is Barr protecting here? We won't know unless we get to see the full report. Democrats say they want access to all of that information, even if some of it cannot be disclosed to the public due to, uh, uh, well, all sorts of things, laws uh, concerning grand juries and classified materials and so forth. Nadler said he will give Barr some time to change his mind on the redactions. Why Nadler is giving that time to Barr, I don't know. But if they can't reach an accommodation, then uh, Nadler says he will issue the subpoenas, quote, in very short order, which he he now has um, the permission to do after this vote in the Judiciary Committee. He's also said he's willing to go to court to get the grand jury information. The uh, Judiciary Committee also voted on Wednesday to authorize subpoenas related to five of Trump's former top advisors, 
Those uh, advisors who could now receive subpoenas include strategist Steve Bannon, communications director Hope Hicks, chief of staff Reince Priebus, uh, White House counsel Don McGahn, and counsel Ann Donaldson, who served as McGahn's chief of staff before both of them left the administration. The five were key witnesses, apparently in Mueller's probe of possible obstruction of justice and were sent document requests by the Judiciary Committee last month, along with dozens of other people connected to Trump. But Nadler said he is concerned while some of them have turned over documents. uh, There are some reports that some of the documents relevant to Mueller's investigation were, quote, sent outside the White House, meaning if they were sent outside the White House, The committee should have access to them because they would not then be covered by executive privilege, which was given up when the documents were sent away. Hmm. Trump has uh, largely pretended to be in favor of releasing the report, deferring to Barr on its release, uh, while also saying repeatedly he wouldn't mind if the full version was made public. And yet he on Twitter yesterday criticized Democrats for seeking the unredacted information from that report, saying that uh, Nadler and uh, House Intelligence Chair Adam Schiff uh, saying about them, there is no amount of testimony or document production that can satisfy them. Well, uh, actually, all of the testimony and documents uh, that were created by the special counsel just released those. And I bet they would be satisfied. You know, it's funny. He doesn't really act like an innocent man if he believes this Mueller report would exonerate him. He would, you'd think, he would be, be asking specifically, yeah. please, Attorney General Barr, please, now that I, this report has vindicated me, please let everyone see it. One would think. He's not asking that. Also, in uh, over in the Senate, where am I here? In the Senate, Republicans on Wednesday used a uh, procedural tactic that uh, is referred to as the nuclear option to now change the chamber's rules to make it easier to confirm lower-level Trump nominees, including lifetime appointments to the federal bench. That effort by uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell comes after Republicans failed to adopt a resolution to change the chamber's rules so that non-cabinet-level executive and district court nominees would face only two hours of floor debate rather than 30 before a confirmation vote. That resolution received only 51 of the 60 votes required for adoption along party lines, which means, by the way, that even two Republicans did not vote to overcome a filibuster on the matter. Um, McConnell uh, revealing extraordinary hypocrisy and chutzpah, frankly, after blocking Barack Obama's Supreme Court nominee for a year in order to steal the high court's uh, uh, majority, the Supreme Court's majority from Democrats, McConnell said on the Senate floor Wednesday before the vote, quote, this systematic obstruction is unfair to our duly elected president. This from a guy who also blocked most, if not all, of Obama's lower level judicial appointments as well. Correct. Uh, He said it's uh, unfair to our duly elected president and more importantly, it's disrespectful to the American people who deserve the government they elected. Yes, he really said that. Uh, This is uh, the third time in six years that the majority party has employed 
this procedure to overcome minority opposition, allowing an action previously subject to a filibuster and thus a 60 vote threshold to simply pass with just 51 votes, um, a 51 vote majority. This was the third time in 2013 after five years of unprecedented GOP obstruction that you mentioned, Des. Uh, that uh, where the GOP blocked just about everyone who was nominated to the courts and to federal agencies by President Obama. Uh, Democrats used the same move to eliminate the 60-vote threshold to confirm executive branch and non-Supreme Court judicial nominees under President Obama. Because of unprecedented Republican obstruction. Correct. And then Republicans did the same thing in return to clear the way for Supreme Court nominations right after Donald Trump took office in order to confirm Neil Gorsuch to the high court in 2017 after blocking Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, for a year. Uh, And then uh, that uh, was also used, uh, the 51 majority, uh, to get uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh in last year. Senator Patrick Leahy of Vermont called this a short-sighted partisan power grab and an erosion of the Senate's advice and consent role. But I will remind you that if the Democrats do take back the White House next year, presumably these same uh, issues, uh, requirements or lack thereof will be in effect under the next Democratic president. All right. One more before we get out. House Ways and Means Committee Chair Richard Neal has now formally requested just minutes ago that President Donald Trump's uh, tax returns be turned over by the Internal Revenue Service, six years of them. That will likely launch another long battle with the administration. Um, Neal cites a little-known IRS code in his request for six years of Trump's personal tax returns from 2013 to 2018 and also requested the tax return of eight of Trump's business entities. Lots of uh, fights, legal and otherwise, to come uh, in uh, in Congress in Washington, D.C., and we'll cover every single one of them right here on the broadcast. <laughs> Uh, my thanks to my guest today, John Nichols of The Nation, to our producer, as always, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion today, you can download this or any other Bradcast for free at bradblog.com. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. Beyond that, my thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on the air and to help everyone hear all of the broadcasts for free anytime. All right, that's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.